We have a big task in front of us today because originally this was going to be two lessons, uh, but I've had to contract it into one lesson uh, because I've been called away to go uh, preach and administer the Lord's Supper at one of our country churches in the area. They don't have an ordained minister, and they'd like to take the Lord's Supper every once in a while. So uh, I hope you'll forgive the, the, uh, the pace of today, but we're going to be moving fast and covering a lot of ground. So uh, uh, keep your head up and pay attention, and we'll be all right. So we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 7. I'm not going to read the whole of chapter 7, but we are going to try to cover the whole of chapter 7. So I'll read it bit by bit and explain some important details. Uh, We won't cover all the details just because of time, uh, but I think we can get the main idea out of each section uh, well enough. And so the main idea of the passage on the whole, I'll give it to you out now up front. Paul gives it to us explicitly about halfway through the passage, uh, but I'm going to give it to you at the front. Uh, Live as you were called. Uh, whether in uh, family marriage, whether in singleness, whether as a widow uh, in, in your marriage, in your work, uh, whether you're a bond servant or a free man, uh, Paul has all these categories and he wants uh, the Corinthian church to understand this principle, which is that you are to live as you were called. And what that means, what we'll see as we go through our text. Let's start with uh, verses seven, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. I'll read it, and we'll just kind of go chunk by chunk through chapter 7. Verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so Paul here is addressing uh, specifically, firstly, marriage. uh, And he has some instruction for the Corinthian church. It seems probably the case uh, that a, a dualistic worldview has seeped into the Corinthian church such that uh, there's this view that spirit is good and matter is bad, and if spirit is good and matter is bad, then uh, things that are of a physical nature, perhaps like sexual relations and marriage, then become bad. And so he's addressing uh, perhaps this idea of living in marriage but remaining celibate indefinitely. And against this, he says, men and women, they should get married to one another, and they should give one another their conjugal rights. It's a very simple instruction correcting uh, a wrong understanding of sex and marriage uh, as being bad. And he's saying, no, sex and marriage is good. Men and women should get married and give one another their conjugal rights. There are two arguments here that he makes. Uh, men and women should get married. Why? Uh, because of sexual morality. It's not the only reason you get married, but it's a significant part of why Paul would have men to marry. Uh, is, is because of this sexual immorality, this issue of sexual immorality, uh, God's solution to this, uh, to, to burning with passion, as Paul will say later, uh, his, his solution to uh, fornication, his a, a solution so much. Remember, this is a, 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 a Roman city uh, that is known for rampant cult prostitution. And so Paul is addressing people who have recently come to the faith, and they come to faith with baggage. A lot of them will have been engaged in this sort of cult prostitution before. Uh, perhaps some of them even now. In fact, we know by his corrections, a lot of these people are still engaged in sexual immorality. And Paul's point is that marriage is not bad. There's no higher life uh, value to remaining celibate. Uh, and certainly there's no value to remaining celibate indefinitely in marriage. You should get married. 
and you should give one another your conjugal rights because of sexual immorality. The second argument he makes uh, is because you belong to your spouse. I think this is a radical statement to be made uh, in Paul's day. Uh, this idea that you, you, you belong to your spouse. When two become one flesh, there is one flesh. And that one flesh belongs both to the, the spouse, uh, the husband, and to the wife. And so uh, there is no grounds to say no, to, to refuse uh, to have sexual relations with your spouse. It is a, a duty. We talked about the, the fifth commandment this morning in worship service. We have duties one to another, don't we? And in marriage, one of our duties is uh, to give one another our conjugal rights. Now, I do want to note, because uh, our culture has uh, gone even further down the, uh, uh, the destructive path, uh, uh, note that he does say each man should have his own wife, uh, and each woman should have uh, his own, uh, her own spouse, uh, husband. Uh, and so this is not... Uh, a, 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 a situation where Paul is commending anything except for one man and one woman, right? Uh, polyamory, uh, polygamy is off the table uh, as far as biblical sexual ethics are concerned. Uh, we are to have one wife, uh, husbands of one wife, wives of one husband. Uh, we belong to one another. Next section, uh, verses 5 through 7, uh, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may come, uh, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this: I wish that all were as myself uh, am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so he said, as a, as a general rule, men should get married, uh, and they should get married to a woman, uh, one woman, and and they should share with one another their conjugal rights. Uh, but there are uh, some exceptions here. We have two exceptions he gives us. The first one uh, is that a married couple may agree to a period of abstinence for the purpose of prayer, not an indefinite celibacy in marriage, as if that's some higher spiritual practice, uh, but for a, a, a set period of time, probably a short period of time, uh, Paul does say uh, it might be appropriate uh, to abstain. Uh, and for what purpose? Not just for the sake of abstaining from uh, sexual relations, uh, conjugal rights, uh, but specifically for the purpose of prayer. And this is keeping with the Bible's general doctrine of fasting, right? Uh, that when uh, we uh, fast, the reason we fast is not uh, for diet. It's not a diet plan, you know, fast for 40 days like Jesus and you will have your beach bod for the summer. No, that is not the Bible's doctrine of fasting, right? Uh, the, the idea is you step away from a meal, perhaps two or three meals, maybe for uh, a few days, uh, you know, depending on your health situation, you might fast. And you're using that extra time that you're no longer spending eating to pray. Well, in a similar way, Paul would uh, grant that it may be appropriate in marriage uh, to abstain from sexual relations uh, to regain some time for prayer. Uh, but again, it is for a, a period of time and for the purpose of prayer, not an indefinite abstinence uh, as if uh, celibacy or abstinence in and of itself was something to be desired. No, it's to regain time for prayer. The second exception he gives is for people like Paul himself. We don't know whether Paul was widowed or if he was uh, always single, uh, but it seems at this time he is single, and we don't see any record of him ever marrying or being widowed. There's no data in the Bible really to indicate one way or another, but Culturally, people say probably as, as an older man of his position, he probably was married at one point and widowed, but we don't ultimately don't know, and it doesn't ultimately matter. Uh, but he does say here, uh, I wish that all were as I am myself, 
but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so what he's talking about here is his singleness. He has been gifted uh, in his context with singleness. And he's saying, I, w- I wish that others were as I am, because there are, there are advantages. And he's going to describe some of those advantages uh, of being single. Uh, but he doesn't compel. You notice that he says, now is a concession, not a command. He's not compelling people to celibacy. Uh, there are religious organizations, uh, and Protestantism has come out of Roman Catholicism, and one of the big issues during the Reformation was this, uh, co- this coerced vows of celibacy uh, and the, the, the destruction that wrought and the immorality of the priesthood uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, something we see, frankly, to this day, uh, if only we'd heed the instruction of the Bible. Because what does Paul say? He says, each has their own gift. Some are given the gift of marriage. Some are given the gift of singleness. And it's a gift. It's, it's, it's given. Notice he says it's a gift from God. So it's not purely just a matter of me and my own determination have decided I'm going to be single. You know, so often the case nowadays in our culture, men, are, men and women are doing that. And it's for the reason that Dr. Phillips gave upstairs, if you were paying attention to the sermon, it's because of utter selfishness. Because by remaining single, they can have a, a style of life that doesn't involve having to spend money and time raising children. No, God says singleness is a a gift uh, that is given to him, and it has specific purposes, and we'll see those in a moment. So people like Paul, those who have been given the gift of singleness, it comes with self-control, we'll see. Um, But the main point here is that they're gifts. Uh, Both of them are gifts, one of one kind, one of another. 8, 9, going through 13. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has, ha, has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So Paul here, he affirms uh, singleness, but he gives a warning, right? In the very beginning, he gives a warning. It's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, we see that in the Bible, not the only purpose of marriage, but one of the significant purposes of marriage is to provide a, a holy context for sexual desires and passions to be exercised uh, with uh, your spouse. And so it is a, a, a remedy to all manner of uh, sexual sin. I think of our own culture and the, the undue delay of marriage, uh, oftentimes into the 30s and 40s now, I think, is the average age of marriage. And one of the reasons people can do that is because they're fornicating throughout that entire period of time, isn't it? The case that they're doing that. Uh, Paul would say, if you can't exercise self-control, you need to get married. It doesn't matter whether you're 20 years old. You may not have all your ducks in a row. You may not have that great career and the house and the car and the the 401k all lined up. But he says, if you can't control yourself, you need to get married. Uh, If God has given you the gift of singleness, shouldn't we presume that God also gives the gift of self-control with that gift of singleness? I think so. 
I think so. Uh, if our passions are raging within us, burning is the language he uses. It's not, it's not a little thing, right? This is, this is uh, it's strong language, burning with passion. It's not just like, ah, you know, I could, I could have a spouse, that might be nice. No, this is the, the, the situation. Uh, they're burning with passions, and so they need to get married. So Paul affirms singleness is good, but he warns that self-control is necessary. Uh, God has ordained marriage for the holy satisfaction of our sexual desires. And then thirdly, believers ought to preserve this bond of marriage with their unbelieving spouse. And this is where we get into a little bit of new material. That whole last section from, uh, I think, verse 11 through 13 or so, uh, he's been talking about marriage. He's been talking about singleness. Uh, and now he brings up this issue of what we might call mixed faith marriages. What's going on in the Corinthian church is they were all pagans. And then the gospel came and, and people believed in Jesus Christ and they were converted uh, in faith to Jesus Christ. And now they're trying to walk as Christians. But what was once a purely pagan marriage is now no longer a purely pagan marriage. One spouse, whether a husband or a wife, has become a believer. And the question then becomes, well, should they remain married? Should they separate? Are they allowed to? What, what is the instruction? So Paul, as a pastor, as an apostle, he's instructing the church on this issue. And the summary of his instruction is this. Persevere in your marriage. Preserve your marriage. Do not get a divorce. Stay with your unbelieving spouse. Now, I don't know if anybody here is married to an unbeliever. I've been married, what, six years? Going out on a limb, guessing a number here. I think about six years. So. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's a dangerous thing. Uh, and mar- marriage is tremendously hard. I mean, is that fair? Is it, is it fair to say that marriage is tremendously hard? Not to say, you know, not disparage my wife. I love my wife. She's a great wife, better than most wives, I think. <laughs> but marriage is hard even between two believers. Uh, we're sinners, Right? And the, the advantage of, uh, of a Christian marriage is that you have two sinners who understand that they are sinners and they know that they're supposed to repent when they sin and they know that they're supposed to forgive when their uh, spouse uh, repents, that there's this dynamic in the relationship of, uh, of sin, but there's also this dynamic of repentance and forgiveness and both parties are following after Christ. Well, in an unbelieving marriage, that's not the case. You've got young believers mixed with unbelievers in these marriages, and, and it's got to be tremendously hard. I know one, one couple up in Maryland, I remember from our church, uh, was married to a, a Roman Catholic, sweet lady, married to a Roman Catholic. It was very hard for her. Uh, he refused to, to, to come to church, uh, was not uh, anybody who gave a, a credible profession. And for decades, for decades, she, she, she served this, this, this man uh, you know, humbly and just praying for him. Uh, but he was just... He, he, he was not converted, and it was a very hard for her. Um, I don't think there was any you know, abuse or anything like that. Sometimes that's the case. But mixed-faith mar- mixed marriages are hard. Uh, but Paul would say that, yes, they're hard, and you're to preserve in them, persevere in them. Uh, the challenge uh, of mixed-faith marriages are unique because true conversion, it radically reorients the way we live as believers and so one might wonder whether it's advisable for a converted Christian to remain married uh, to an unbeliever. I think especially of other instructions in God's word, right? We have 2 Corinthians 6.14. Paul's going to say, don't be unequally yoked. He hasn't said that yet. But even in the Old Testament, uh, we have clear example that believers are not to marry unbelievers, right? Uh, they're, they're not to be married 
to the, the, the foreign women with the foreign gods, lest they follow after those foreign gods. And so is Paul contradicting himself? I'll open that up to the class very briefly. Uh, we have these verses that say, don't marry unbelievers. And then Paul's here saying, stay married to your unbelieving spouse. Is that a contradiction? No. 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 Somebody, somebody resolve this great non-contradiction for us. Yeah, you made that bed and you can still sleep in it. Very well put. Uh, very well put. Yeah, that's exactly right. Paul, Paul, is, Paul is going to say, don't get unequally yoked. Don't marry an unbeliever. Uh, to those who are, are, are single, that's advisable, uh, biblical uh, counsel. More than that, it's, it's God's will. It, it's a commandment. Do not become unequally yoked. And so if you're a single person and you're a believer, you should not be marrying unbelievers. Uh, whether those are uh, Muslims, Buddhists, you know, uh, uh, atheists. I do evangelism on the streets all the time. It, it, it is amazing to me, astounding to me. The number of dating couples where I meet, and uh, we ask one, and it's a, usually a sweet Christian girl who has all the right answers. She's believing in Jesus, and she's got some knucklehead with her. That doesn't know, uh, uh, you know, doesn't know Jeremiah, Jeremiah for jo- from John. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't got a clue uh, how one can have eternal life. And it's heartbreaking. Because, you know, apart from strong pastoral, you know, counsel, they're not going to break that off, you know. But it's, it, it's a devastating thing uh, to, to intentionally marry an unbeliever because what so often happens in those cases is that one of those people ends up being led away from the Lord. Uh, we don't want that for our children, and so we need to be praying. Uh, I think most of us are married, I think, in this room at this point, so we're not looking to find a spouse. If you're single and you're looking for a spouse, make sure you find a Christian one. Uh, but we need to be praying for our children, that they would marry believers, that they would marry in the Lord. Uh, but yes, this is not a contradiction. Uh, Paul is saying, if you're already married when you become a believer, you need to stay in that marriage. And he's going to have some more to say about that. It's hard uh, to be in a mixed, a mixed faith marriage, but he wants to encourage believers to, to persevere, and especially these difficult marriages, to reassure them that their marriages are acceptable uh, by God. And so he goes on, verses 14 through 16, he's going to explain why, why is the marriage between a believer and an unbeliever still acceptable to God? Let's see what he has to say. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save uh, your wife? And so the unbeliever, by virtue of his uh, or her connection with the believing spouse, uh, Paul says, is sanctified. Paul's not saying here that the unbeliever is saved. This isn't uh, personal, uh, definitive, or progressive sanctification wherein the Holy Spirit is uh, giving rebirth and uh, reorienting us to, to live as Christians, making us able and willing to believe and to follow after Christ. It's not that sanctification. Uh, but there's a communication uh, of holiness from the believer to the unbeliever, not a communication of unholiness and defilement from the unbeliever to the believer. And so perhaps the concern in the Corinthian church is, is how, how can God accept my marriage? Paul's 
already said, I think, at this point that, you know, if you join yourself to a prostitute, it's a bad thing, right? Because it's, it's this deep relationship and uh, sexual immorality. You're sinning within yourself. Uh, and so what, is, what about with an unbeliever? Well, when you join yourself with an unbeliever, are you, uh, are you defiling yourself? And Paul says, no, your, your marriage is holy. Your marriage is acceptable by God. And God wants you to remain in it, and he's going to bless it. Um, so it's not salvation for the unbelieving husband or wife necessarily, though Paul certainly seems to indicate that may be a very real possibility, right? In 16 he says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether uh, you will save your wife? And the answer to the question is, well, we really don't know, but God often does work in that way. Uh, numerous uh, examples of ungodly men uh, being prayed for by their godly uh, uh, wives. Uh, sometimes the other way around, but <laughs> God can do either case. Uh, he can save an unbelieving spouse over time, and I think we've actually seen some examples of that in this church. Uh, so God does that. Uh, but the main thing he's getting at here is reassuring the believing Christian that they are not defiled by remaining faithful to their unbelieving husband or wife. Their marriage is not less than. It is not sub um, uh, some subform of marriage. It's, it's Christian marriage because one, one member is a Christian and is connected to Christ. And so God is pleased to bless that. And one of the ways he blesses those marriage, what does he say? If it were not so, otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now I think there's some, uh, an important distinction I make here. right? Uh, concerning the unbelieving spouse, uh, there is this verb used uh, to sanctify. They are sanctified. They are, they are not saved, but they are set apart in a particular way, uh, and they, they are not defiling uh, their, their believing spouse. There's no communication of corruption, but there's a communication in some way of holiness. Uh, but it's a verb. But when you look at what he says about children, it's an adjective. It's something substantially true about who they are. They are holy. And this is one of the reasons why in the Presbyterian Church, when acknowledging uh, that this is true, that children, even of, uh, of one believing spouse, are holy, uh, that they, they are set apart in a, a, a definitive way uh, to God, uh, that is one of the reasons why we baptize. It's not the only reason we baptize uh, children of the covenant, but it is one of the reasons. Now... That was through 16. God accepts and blesses uh, mixed faith marriages. Therefore, believers should remain in them. Uh, but there's an exception. What's the exception? Yeah. If the unbeliever chooses to leave, uh, and we can imagine this very easily, suddenly your spouse won't go sinning with you. Suddenly they want to go and be with these weird people called Christians and you know, they're, they're not going to the, the religious pagan feasts and uh, engaging in the, uh, the orgies and the sexual immorality and the drinking parties and all that stuff. So says, you're no fun anymore. And so you put your wife or your, your husband away. Uh, certainly we can imagine cases where uh, a, an unbeliever would not want to remain uh, in a marriage with a believer. And so Paul says, if they are unwilling... In that case, uh, divorce is permissible. Um, and so that is the instruction we have. The, the divorce should never be being pursued uh, in this situation of a mixed-faith marriage. There are other times where a believer may pursue divorce. Uh, Paul's going to talk about some of those things later. Uh, but uh, the believer in this situation, in a mixed-faith marriage, your, your, your spouse is an unbeliever, you should not pursue 
divorce. But if the other partner insists, you are permitted uh, to, uh, uh, to separate. So Paul has issued this corrective against celibacy for celibacy's sake. He says that's no good. Marriage is good. Sex and marriage is good. Believers in mixed faith marriages, they should stay married in order to produce holy offspring for the Lord. Uh, singleness is also good, but what's necessary? Self-control. They burn with passions, it's no good. And so you need to get married. And so that is his instruction at this point. Now, in verses 17 through 24, Paul uh, compresses all this practical family advice into a principle. And it's the principle I already gave you at the beginning. What was it? Live as you were called. You're single. How should you live? As you're called. If you're married, how should you live? As you were called. If you're married to an unbeliever, how should you live? As you were called. He says... Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Again, it's coming from the Lord. It's vocation, right? God calls you and gifts you for that calling and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all my churches. And so up to this point, the the instruction is not uh, something special or unique whipped up for the Corinthian church because of their particular situation. This is general biblical, pastoral, apostolic counsel that Paul would have given to the Ephesians or the Galatians just as he has to the, to the, to the, the Corinthians. It's not unique to their situation. Paul's not burdening the Corinthians with anything more than what he's already required of all the churches everywhere. It's not unique counsel uh, for some exceptional situation. Some people will argue that, and you'll see in a moment why they make that argument. Verse 18, was anyone at this time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And so Paul's kind of pivoting here. He's been talking about what we might consider the the family, right? Singleness, uh, marriage. Uh, widowhood, uh, these sorts of things. Now he's pivoting uh, into uh, another direction. He's talking here about circumcision. Uh, and the main point here is, is that God accepts you as you are called. Circumcision doesn't matter for anything. Uncircumcision doesn't matter for anything. There's no advantage to being converted as a Jew versus being converted as a Gentile. Everyone is accepted uh, who believes in Jesus. All believers should live as they're called. This is one way Paul is saying that this, the ceremonial law, the ceremonial law, it doesn't count for anything. You don't get bonus points for it. You're not a better Christian for it. Um, what does count for something? Look at verse 19. Keeping the commandments of God. Keeping the Paul says, counts for something. That there would be a wrong interpretation of this principle, live as you were called. And unfortunately, it's a, it's a, it's a wrong interpretation or application of that principle uh, that is so prevalent today, causing so many troubles in the church. You say, I, I come to Jesus as I am, and I stay exactly the same. I keep sinning in all the ways I was sinning before, and I don't change at all. Then you're not saved. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And conversion, being born from above, radically reorients who we are as our, in our persons. It reorients us in terms of our behaviors, our thought life, our affections. And so we live as we're called. That does not mean that I can keep on sinning. It, 
the ceremonial law doesn't count for anything, but the moral law still counts. One of the, the illustrations I use so often with our younger children in, the, in describing the, the act of repentance, and I, I don't think it's too base for adults, is repentance is an about face, right? You're, you're, you're turning away from sin, and you're turning. It's hard to do that nowadays. I'm out of practice. I used to be in the military. I could do that sharply. And you're turning towards Jesus, right? In faith, you're looking towards Jesus. But then the last part that's so often lost in evangelicalism is the endeavoring after new obedience, that we're making a sincere effort to follow after Jesus, to walk with him as a disciple, uh, to, to, to hear and to do all which he has commanded us. That's part of our repentance and faith, is obedience. Uh, it's a, a real part of it. And Paul says here, what, what counts, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Not speaking of the ceremonial law, but speaking of the moral law. We are to walk and live with him in joyful and thankful obedience to the moral law. How are we doing on time? We're running out. All right, and the same is true for bond servants and freedmen, okay? And so he's turning from family. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the ceremonial and the moral law. Now he's making a fuller pivot to sort of what we might call our, our, our professional vocation, right? Obviously, we don't have bond servants and free men anymore in our cultural context, but in, in Corinth, they did, and it was a big uh, uh, division uh, in the demographics of society. If you were a freedman, that meant something. If you weren't, uh, that meant something too. He says, each one should remain in the condition in which he is called. Were you a bond servant when you call, were called? Uh, do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who is called the, in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant in Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And so Paul is saying, regardless of your social or economic standing, all believers... Uh, have relation to Christ. They are both of Christ, bondservants of Christ, freedmen of Christ. And the reality is that, that both of these truths are both true for all believers. There is a sense in which every believer is a freedman of Christ. And there is a sense in which every believer is a slave of Christ, right? Uh, we are freedmen of Christ in the sense that we've been set free from the power of sin and the flesh and the world and the devil and our citizenship is no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but our citizenship is in the kingdom of light under Christ's reign and rule. And so we are, we are freed uh, no longer to sin, but we are freed to serve Christ in obedience and faith. But we're slaves to Christ as well, right? Because we are uh, to follow after him, to suffer with him, uh, and we are to, to obey him. He is our Lord. Uh, he has redeemed us. That means he's paid the purchase price for us, and he owns us. That's what Paul himself says. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Now, Paul, Paul is very careful here. And I think it's pastoral wisdom in, the, in its best form, right? Because he doesn't say, live as you're called. If you are a bondservant, you know, you're just always still going to be a bondservant. You're going to be a slave. Just suck it up. Be content. No, that's not what he says. What he says, if you can avail yourself to your freedom, take the opportunity. That's good pastoral advice. Paul's point here is that your position in society is not ultimate. It's not the thing which matters most. It's penultimate or pen penultimate. What matters most is that you are in and of the Lord, whether freed or slave, you belong to him. 
But if you have opportunity for upward mobility in society, Paul's not saying, put it in, in, in our context, you know, if you're a ditch digger, you should just stay a ditch digger forever. Don't even try to, you know, better your economic or social situation. He's not saying that at all. He's saying if there's opportunity, improve your situation. But don't be so focused on that. That's not the thing that matters most. And don't be discontent that you're a bondservant because you're a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're a bondservant. When you realize you're a son of God with an heir kept eternally in heaven for you, perfect and unfading and unperishing, and that you have eternal life, doesn't that make whatever your low situation so much easier? Doesn't that, doesn't that lift you up? I think of somebody like Joseph, right? Thrown in a pit, sold into slavery. Obviously, the Lord in his providence raises him up. But he could have been in, that, in, 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 the, in the prison forever, and he would have been a faithful servant of Christ. He would have been content. Because he, he knew at the end of the day uh, that he, he was living not for men, and not for himself, but for Christ. So this doctrine of being a freedman in Christ would be hugely encouraging uh, to somebody in a low condition. Conversely, and I think this is why Paul gives a particular application to particular groups of people, if you're really high up inside of society, you're at the top of the uh, organizational ladder, right? The, you know, you're the, the CFO or the CEO, maybe you work for yourself. He's saying, he's reminding you, you're a slave in Christ. You're a slave of Christ. Humble yourself. Don't be too proud. Uh, you, you may think that you've got all the things in the world, but what really matters is that you serve Christ. That, that's what matters most. That's the ultimate goal you should have. And so don't sell yourself into slavery, he says also, um, reminding us. And I think this is, a very, this is probably very real in the Corinthian church. He's saying, you know, don't actually become a bondservant. You were bought with a price. It's better to stay a freedman. You know, there, there are dynamics of applications of debt here probably. Don't bind yourself to... to to, to being a, a wage slave. Don't indebt yourself to the point where you don't have the freedom to serve Christ. Um, try not to take a job that keeps you from worshiping him. You know, there's maybe an application there. Uh, we, we should be very careful to give up our personal liberty. Sometimes you have to work on Sunday, I get it. But we need to be very careful about giving up our personal liberty when it becomes a hindrance to our ability to worship and serve Christ and do the things he's called us to do. Uh, we need to be careful with that. Now, concerning the last 15 verses, Paul, having dealt with those who are single and then those who are married, he's offered his apostolic judgment based on certain circumstances here. He's going to go to the in-between. There's one place he hasn't covered in the last 15 verses of chapter 7. What, what, what's between being single and being married? We don't really have it anymore, but it's something like engagement, Right? Uh, he's talking to the betrothed and engagement in America means next to nothing. You can break it off like that, but engagement betrothal, uh, in, in this situation was a contract, uh, contractual, uh, situation, uh, to break, uh, a betrothal. Uh, you had to pursue a certificate of divorce essentially. So you, you were as good as married, uh, without having consummated that marriage, uh, through the exchange of conjugal privileges and rights. And so let's read very quickly the last 15 verses. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my judgment. As one by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. 
But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly trouble, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as those who are not rejoicing, and those who buy as as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. For the present form of the world is passing away. And I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried and betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, it is as it has and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin, but whoever is, mar- is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having the desire under his control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as of the betrothed, he will, do, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed as well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Again, marriage is in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So Paul basically says, if you're betrothed, you can get married. Or you cannot get married. And I think this is the part where Paul starts to have some very specific circumstances related to Corinth in mind. It's possible uh, that it's related to everybody dying from the Lord's Supper because they're taking it unworthily. Uh, we don't really know the exact circumstances. Some people look at this as generally being uh, in light of the, the, the coming of Christ again. And so, so there's sort of an eschatological uh, foreshortening where because the, the, the coming of Christ is seen as being very eminent, uh, perhaps uh, we should not be getting married Um, nobody really knows. You read the commentators, they're all divided. I think at best we can say this. If if it is talking about the second coming of Christ, uh, the the, the Christian uh, people would not last very long if they didn't get married, would they? Not having children, we're going to die off pretty quick. Uh, So I I have a hard time believing, and Paul's counsel uh, pretty much everywhere in the Bible elsewhere uh, concerning the second coming of Christ uh, is contrary to this idea of not getting married because of it. Uh, you know, the, the idea is we are to, you know, it's the Jeremiah principle, right? We are to build homes and put in gardens and have children and raise those children. Uh, this, is, this is the ordinary counsel. So I have a hard time believing this is about eschatology. Let me wrap it up with the saying, what, what, what is the general principle I learn here? Uh, I think we learn here. If you're betrothed, you're engaged, get married, don't get married. It's your choice. You're, you're free to do uh, if you want to put it off for a while. That Paul's saying that's okay. But I want to especially draw our attention to 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. That those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Again, the point here, and he goes on, everything in this life, whether marriage or work or commerce, whatever it may be, is not ultimate. What's ultimate? Christ is ultimate. And so in that perspective, we should live first and foremost as Christians. And when we, when we consider how we, we engage in other aspects of life, marriage and uh, mourning and, and celebration, buying and selling, dealing with the world, those aren't the things that define how we live. What defines how we live? We're, we, we've been called and we are to walk as we were called 
keeping God's commandments, looking forward to the time when Christ comes again, let's not lose sight uh, of that trajectory, right? That we have been radically reoriented and we are now following Jesus. And someday we are going to be with Jesus in heaven. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. Uh, We know there are hard things in this passage, Lord, concerning uh, biblical ethics in terms of how we are to uh, live with our our spouses, Lord. We thank you for believing spouses. I do pray for anybody who may be married to an unbeliever, Lord. I pray that you give them peace in their marriage, that you would give uh, comfort and encouragement to the believer, uh, help them to be salt and light. And we do pray that you would convert any unbelieving spouses in this church, Lord, help us to be wise uh, in whom we marry and to live uh, wisely in this world, always keeping an eye towards the fact that this world is not our home. We're pilgrims passing through and that our true home is in heaven with you and with your son and with your spirit. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.